So let me get into the message today. I have the great privilege of continuing a teaching series that we started several weeks ago, a series that we've simply been calling Explore, Explore Life, Faith and Meaning. And as you know by now, if you've been with us, that we base this teaching series on the world-famous Alpha course, which was started in the UK by a man by the name of Nikki Gumbel. And through its question-based approach, it focuses on the basics of Christian faith through providing a safe place to explore the big questions of life, particularly those surrounding life, faith, and meaning. And we began this series several weeks ago, and we've covered quite a few big questions already, like is there more to, more to life than what lies between the bookends of our natural birth and death? We've answer, asked and answered questions about prayer, the Bible, how does the Spirit guide us? And Jordan talked to us about an important message last week on questions concerning the Holy Spirit. And today we'll continue by discussing everybody's favorite topic, the subject of evil, right? I know you've just been waiting to get to subject of evil. In fact, I'm having to suppress an urge to do an evil, like, villain laugh, as I say. I know you don't want to hear me do that. Evil. What is evil? Evil in the world, many of us. If you've got your eyes open, if you watch the news, if you're on social media, you, you see, like, evil all around us, right? But generally speaking, evil is just what we might consider profoundly immoral and wicked things, people actions, right? But from a biblical perspective, biblically speaking, moral evil is that which is opposed to God, that which is opposite to God, and that which is contrary to God. If God is incorruptibly good, as we know that he is, the scripture tells us that all good originates from God. James chapter 1 verse 7, every good and perfect gift comes from where? The Father above. We know that anything that opposes God or the things of God or the way that God would have things be could be considered morally evil. We talk a lot here about the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of light. And whenever we talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light, we hasten to say that there is another team on the field. One of my favorite preachers said years ago, and it's always stuck with me when I think about the clashing of the kingdoms, the clashing of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. I need to think of it in terms of the kingdom of darkness. There's another team on the field. When I was playing football in high school, we loved Thursdays, the days before the games, because we didn't have to put on our pads and the practices were very easy and we would do what coach would call these walkthroughs or these jogthroughs. No defense in front of us. We would just run the plays and you would be surprised how, how easy the plays were when there's no defense in front of you. These things would just click off and you got this confidence. You say, we're going to kill these guys tomorrow. This is smooth, right? But wouldn't you know that when we pull up to Gately Stadium to get off the bus to play, to play our game, another bus pulls up and those guys are wearing different shirts and their goal is to stop everything we do. And those plays, would you guess, didn't click off as smoothly as they did in that Thursday walkthrough. Why? Because there was another team on the field, and their goal and their aim and their purpose was to stop us. We hasten to say that there's another team on the field, and that team is designed to oppose the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light. I might press in further by saying we may have too narrow a view of evil. 
We might think of evil as these really dark, pronounced things that make the evening news. We might be tempted to reduce evil to just evil people doing bad things. Mean people doing mean things. One of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, said just this week that if, if we reduce evil to something as small as that, we will totally miss the fact that there is a bigger evil force around us. If when you look at the Holocaust, you say, you know what, the Holocaust, that, that wasn't some deep, dark force. That was a weird man with a weird mustache who was just bad. And there wasn't some evil, dark force behind that. If you look at uh, slavery, you would just say, well, that's purely economics and people taking advantage of an economic opportunity. If, if you reduce it to that and say there wasn't something evil and demonic behind, centuries-long exploitation, brutal exploitation of people groups, if you, say, if you don't see a darker force behind that, if you look at addiction, and you just say, well, this person just fell into this. Maybe they had a chemical sort of pre predisposition to this, and that might be true, but if you don't see a dark, evil, demonic force behind this, I think we might have oversimplified it. And we can take it through the gamut of all things that are evil. You can look at the swindlers like Bertie Madoff, or mass shootings, or terrorist acts. And you can say, well, those people were bad, but we need to zoom out and see that there is a force behind it. And so where does this evil come from? Well, Nikki Gumbel, the author of this Alpha course, points to what he calls a triple alliance of evil, a triple of alliance of evil that includes at least three things, the world, the flesh, and Satan. The world, the flesh, and Satan. And so, you know... The world is one of those catchphrases that was used very often in the church that I grew up in. The, the old saints would say, you don't want to be too worldly now. <laughs> or turn off that worldly music. Don't be doing those worldly dances. And what, what, were they, what were they talking about? They were talking about there's this realm of things that pertain to life and godliness. And then there are those things and there are those thoughts and that there's those actions that were, were worldly, were, were a part of this world. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, I've told you all these things so that you may have peace in me. Here on the earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome what? The world. And that doesn't mean that everything in the world is bad, but there is a secular reality to things apart from God. That in its very nature, even when it's not trying to, it swims against the current. It runs itself against the grain of how God would do things. It runs itself against the grain of how God has designed things to work. It's the water we swim in. It's the air we believe. It's what's going on around us, the world. The second thing he highlights is the flesh. Fallen, sinful humanity. We are wired to crave things that go against the grain of God's design. And how many of you know that when you rub your life against the grain of what God designed, when you let the flesh drive the bus, when you rub your life against the grain of God's design, you will pick up splinters. 
right? You will pick up splinters. The Apostle Paul, one of the heroes of our faith, says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 18 through 9. I know that nothing good lives in me. This is the Apostle Paul. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. This sounds like some of your journal entries for, you know, this morning. One of the heroes of our faith is reflecting that he himself struggles with self-control. He himself struggles with the flesh, our fallen sinful humanity. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then there's the third, Satan. The devil, the enemy in general, the, the prince of darkness, if you will. Now, some of us struggle to believe that there is a real Satan, right? And for those of us who uh, feel like it's, it insults our intellectual, like, something, to think of the fact that there is a devil because we're thinking about this little red guy with a pitchfork on the hot sauce bottle, <laughs> rather than... A dark spiritual force who's been doing his job really well for a very long time. In fact, I don't have enough faith to not think that there is a devil. To not think that there is some supernatural force, not equal to God in power, not equal to God in uh, uh, omniscience and omnipresence, but there is a dark, worthy opponent that I need to pay attention to. The Bible presents a personal, spiritual being that is an active rebellion against God. And if you don't believe that, the devil loves it. The enemy loves that you don't know, that he's prowling. He goes, these, are, these folks are sitting ducks. From cover to cover in Scripture, the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah to Job, and many of the other books, they talk about this active spiritual being in rebellion against God. In the New Testament, particularly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says this in verse 17, as he's handing them a prayer template, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from what? The evil one. The evil one. And these aren't just bad people, mean people. This is talking about Satan, our enemy, prince of darkness. And so in general, I think we need to get clearer about the evil that does exist in our world and how to deal with it as believers. And I want to spend some time doing that this morning in a message that I'm simply calling, How Do I Resist Evil? How do I resist evil? Listen, we can talk to you about all the Christian basics. We can talk to you about Jesus. We can talk to you about the Spirit. We can talk to you about the Bible. And we can talk to you about prayer. But if we don't equip you to deal with the other team that's on the field, I mean, it's spiritual malpractice as far as I can, as far as I can tell. And so I want you to lean in today because I think this will help you. I want to look quickly at two texts this morning to help us wrap our minds around this subject. And we'll look at evil and temptation and darkness um, from, from at least two angles. We'll look at Adam and then we'll look at Jesus and we'll focus a bit on present day. And so if you can meet me in your Bibles this morning, we're going to start this morning in Genesis chapter 3. 
starting there at verse 1. And uh, as my daddy used to say when he was preaching, you put your finger there, and then you could also turn to Matthew chapter 4 because we're going to deal with that text as well. There are Bibles on the edges of your row if you want a paper Bible in your hand this morning. Uh, you can also interact with the text on your mobile devices. I'm not at all bothered if you're interacting with the text on your Bible. And then we'll also be projecting the text up on the screen. So while you find that, Genesis 3, let me pray for us today. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that as we sang this morning, we are who you say we are. That you have overcome the world. And that we don't need to fear darkness. And we don't need to succumb to it. Because you are mighty, you are powerful, you are strong, and ultimately you are with us. And so we cling to that truth this morning as we lean in to your instruction today. Help us, Father, to see this the way you'd have us see it. Help us to be equipped and ready to push back against darkness in a way that would be pleasing to you. Father, I ask as always that you would put power on these words you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and light might shine through. We ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So Genesis chapter 3, let me catch you up uh, before we read that. Genesis chapter 1, as some of you are familiar with the creation narrative, God created the heavens and the earth. He populated the heavens and the earth with all kinds of wildlife, and sea creatures, and he saw to it that it was very good. In Genesis chapter 2, God created man and, and woman and placed them in the Garden of Eden and granted them freedom to enjoy everything in this garden except for the tree that he put in the center of the garden. Now imagine this, this beautiful lush garden that they've been charged to take care of and this garden has been charged to take care of them and sustain them with night, life-giving nutrients and all these things. But God put at the center of this garden this one tree, loads of other trees you can have, but this one tree, God said, don't touch it. Otherwise, the result will be death, right? And you can probably guess where this is headed, right? <laughs> if you don't know the story already, it's really, really predictable. That one tree is really looking good to them, right? And so we pick the story up in chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say... You must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. That didn't take much, did it? <laughs> the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it could give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, this is a fascinating story. You can read the rest of it in your spare time, chapter 3 of Genesis. And this is a dreadful scene, which is commonly referred to as the fall of mankind, the fall of humankind. Adam, Eve, 
living blissfully in the garden that God had placed them in. No, not a care, not a worry, right? Um, But till this moment where we're introduced to evil, and I say evil, not because it presented itself as particularly sinister or bad or what we might say that typical evil looks like. We're introduced to somebody who's being lured away from God's design. The slick serpent smoothly slithers up to however the, the serpent would have gotten up to them and presents them with, a, with, a, with an alternative to what God had set forth before them. And he starts with a question, did God really say, isn't this how a lot of evil starts? Is it really, like really? Did you hear him right? Maybe you left for a bit and you didn't catch it all. Did he really say that? Did he really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And Eve corrects him. No, it's just that one at the center. And so he slides up real smooth, and lots of times evil doesn't just come out and smack you in the face. It, it slides up to you real smooth and questions what God said. Questions what God put before you. And if you engage with it and if you interact with it, it just goes a bit further. The Satan says this to, excuse me, the serpent says this to uh, Eve in verse 5. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, what is the serpent doing here? He's convincing this young woman that God is holding out. That God somehow is like holding out the goods for, from you. That there's some good stuff, there's some fun stuff, there's some really enjoyable resource that God is keeping you from. And in the very next verse, it says, the woman was convinced. She bought it. And so even though she knew better, she took the fruit. And if that's not bad enough, her husband comes walking up, and he doesn't put a stop to it. He said, I've been wanting to try it myself. (laughs) Verse 7 says, at that moment, their eyes were open. And suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. And so they covered themselves. And this is a master class on how not to handle evil when it walks up on you. Read the rest of that chapter to figure out how it goes. But there is another example. There's another example that I want to look at. If that's a master class on how not to engage it, we need an opportunity to see what we should do, how we should engage evil when it slithers up to us and we see an example of Jesus, our eternal example. After he was baptized in Matthew chapter 4, honored by his Father in heaven, the Spirit descends upon, descends upon him like a dove. We see this account in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scripture says people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. 
For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. The devil reads his Bible. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him up to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must, must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. Now, this is a really fascinating text. And honestly, this is one of those texts that tends to bring me more questions than answers. This is a curious text, is it not? Like Jesus is having this strange encounter with the devil. And I mean, dozens of questions flood my mind. I'll just rehearse a few of them with you out loud this morning. What was the devil thinking? Of all the people he could go after, <laughs> he thought, Jesus. Let me go talk to Jesus. He must be really feeling himself to, to this day if he, if he thinks that he can approach Jesus and gain any ground. But I don't just have questions for the enemy. I'm thinking to myself, what is Jesus thinking? My mama used to always tell us, don't talk to a fool because the casual observers will walk up and they won't be able to tell, you know, which one is the moron. And I see Jesus engaging the enemy in a way that seems unwise. It seems curious to me. This seems like it should be beneath him. Why is he even entertaining this clown? This feels bizarre to me. But it's helpful when you sit with it just for a moment. Because if you think about it, if the evil one could slide up to Jesus and test him, who are we? If the evil one thought, let me take a, let me shoot my shot with Jesus. Do you think he will leave us alone? You think he will leave us untempted, untested, unbothered? Then I also remember that Jesus knew that one day we'd read this account and we would need this mini masterclass on how to handle evil, how to handle temptation, how to, you know, handle ourselves when darkness presses in. And suddenly I'm grateful for this text. And my suspicion is that somebody's in this room, somebody's watching me online, that in this very moment of your life, in this very situational reality of what you're dealing with, maybe your job and in your home, or a series of decisions that you might have to make, or a particular way or ways that darkness might be pressing in around you, that you can use this masterclass on how to handle the enemy when he slides up to you. As the enemy approaches our savior, his, tactic, his tactics are on full display. His requests, his conversation seems harmless, not particularly evil on its face, but they reveal the origins of all evil, which we defined earlier as anything that opposes the will of God, anything that opposes the way 
of God. Verse 3 tells us, during that time, the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, keep in mind, Jesus has engaged in a 40-day fast. Even Jesus is practicing his spiritual disciplines. Now, remember this when we engage our fast later. Like, Jesus fasted so you can fast, right? And so Jesus is trying to abstain from food. And the enemy comes up and says, hey, why don't you turn those stones into loaves of bread? Now, this might seem harmless, but we can see if we really look at this, the origins of evil and how evil gets started. The enemy is basically saying, Jesus, use your power and might and influence over creation for your own interest and benefit. Now, that might not seem problematic until I tell you that you are here to glorify God and for the well-being of other people, right? When we talk about why we're here, love God, love people, we exist, right? We're supposed to use our life to glorify God and to bless other people. Jesus, when he came, says he came not to be served but to serve others. And when Jesus runs down what he's supposed to do, I'm here to heal the sick, bind up the brokenhearted, preach liberty to those who are captives, right? So the blind may see, right? Jesus is saying, like, my power, my life, my influence is not for my, to feather my own nest, but it is to do the will of God and to be a blessing to people. But the enemy is trying to get Jesus to part from his fast and to use his power and influence over creation to make himself comfortable. Jesus, you don't have to make a big loaf, just one of them mini loaves, just to take a little bite off of the hunger. Just take the edge off. And it may seem harmless, but Jesus spots it for what it really is. And if you trace back some of the craziest evil that we witnessed before us, it starts with somebody else prioritizing their own comfort over the common good prioritizing what they want right now and what would make them feel better over God's plan. There's more. He takes Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, jump off of this temple. For the scriptures say, and he even tries to quote scripture to Jesus, jump off. And what is he saying to Jesus? Jesus, just flex on him real quick. Show him what you can do. Now, the scripture says he took him to the center, center where, where, the, where the temple was. And I don't know if in this sort of scene that there are people around, or folks who can witness this, but in my mind, I sense that the, 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 the enemy is tempting Jesus. Oh, show him what you got. Show him who's the man. Remind yourself that you still got it. Sound familiar? The root of so much of the evil that we see in the world around us and within ourselves causes us to try to flex somehow. To be more important than we're supposed to be. And if you can't actually be more important than you actually are, maybe you can just somehow look more important. And if you can't be as rich as you want to be, that's why they make credit cards. You can look richer than you are. 
Flex on them real quick, Lord. Show them what you got. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it all to you. He's talking to Jesus. If you will kneel down and worship me. He's getting bolder and bolder, is he not? And what is he trying to tempt the Savior toward? Try to grab a hold of glory apart from the hard, costly way that the Father has prepared for you to get glory and honor. And I'm talking about the cross. Does this sound familiar? If you do the autopsy, the forensic study of these evils in the aftermath, in the world or in your own personal life, the enemy offered you a shortcut. He offered you an easier way. Hard, bloody cross. Well, all you got to do is bow down and worship me. I give it to you right now. And sin and evil will have you focusing on the here and now. And wisdom and godliness will always say, wait, 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 before you do that, fast forward the tape just a little bit. Play this out. Because sin and evil will always have you paying more than you intended to pay, have you staying longer than you intended to stay. Satan offers Jesus a shortcut. Now, we've just seen two profound ex uh, examples ripped from the pages of Scripture, and it seems to me, and I don't think this is an oversimplification, it seems to me that when it comes to evil in any form, we have at least two options. At least two options. We can either cooperate with it or we can resist. Now, the Bible is full of examples on both sides of this, but when I narrow it down, it seems like we have at least two options when it comes to evil. We can cooperate, it, cooperate with it, or we can resist. Some of you have heard of uh, Dr. Jamar Tisby, um, best-selling author, and does a lot of work when it comes to justice and anti-racism. And we had Dr. Tisby come and speak to uh, a group of our black pastors and leaders at our conference uh, last year. And, and, and as he was talking about anti-racism and how to be anti-racist, he gave a brilliant uh, illustration that I think will help illustrate the po point here. He, he talked about these big people movies that you see them in the uh, airports. I think it's called like an auto walk or something like that, right? or moving walkway. You ever, you ever see these? I love these things. I mean, these airports are huge. You can just get on these things, and you can just really get where you're going faster. My wife, when I'm with her, she refuses to get on these. She thinks it's lazy to get on there. She's lazy for me to go on there. So we end up racing. I say, well, I'll beat you down there, right? Um, but I love these people movers, but he brought this up as an illustration. And these big people movers represent the world and its systems. Our world is hopelessly divided. Um, our world has granted some groups of people century-long uh, head starts in life. And there are things built into the systems of how we do things that are just wrought with inequality and injustice, right? It's the water we live in. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the air we breathe. It's systems. It's institutions, right? And he said that how we interact with these systems, how we interact with these things can be illustrated by the different kinds of people on these auto walks. 
there are the folks who get on there and they want to get to their destination faster than this thing is moving. And so you see people on this auto walk that's going in a specific di direction and they're going like faster. They're walking on it. They're cooperating with this machine and they're moving forward, right? And then there are people who are more passive. They just sort of get on the auto walk and they just let the thing glide and they take him where they want to go, right? Then there's the person who dropped their phone back there. And so they have to turn around and like walk against the grain of the auto walk. They're the odd, clumsy person like resisting. They're walking in the opposite direction. And if they're really motivated, they'll get to the other end of it real quick and they'll hit the auto stop thing to stop it from moving in the first place. Three different kinds of folks interacting with a moving auto walk. And I thought this might be helpful for us to consider how we might be interacting with the evil in the world around us. There are three kinds of folks, really. There are those who are just, we're cooperating with it. We're, we're, we are like, evil is moving this way, and we're like moving with it. We're helping it along. And some of you, when you look around the room of your life and you think about the things that cut against the grain of godliness and the things that pertain to life and godliness, and you look at the media you consume and you look at your decisions and you look at how you're managing your sexuality and you look at all the things, you would find that you are cooperating with the evil around you. You're buying things. You're clicking on stuff. You're setting up things that cooperate with darkness in your life. Now, I don't want us all to tell on ourselves this morning because I want us to really wrestle with this. The world around us, the water that we swim in is naturally secular, naturally cuts against the grain of God, and we are actively, some of us, cooperating. And some of you, the conviction of the Holy Spirit arrested you in this moment, not to condemn you, but to say, hey, like, when you could examine your, your, your practices, how you steward your time and your energy and your resource and your money and your sexuality and what media you consume and what entertains you, you would say, my, 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 I am actively cooperating with darkness. And some of us would even go as, to, as far to say, man, you're participating in things that are, are, are actively of the occult. Things that are actively markedly dark. You're actively cooperating. Then there's a second group of people. They're cooperating too, but they're, they're just passively cooperating. They're just on the belt. I'm not walking, Pastor. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exerting any energy, but the, the belt is moving. And it's moving not toward the things that pertain to life and God. It's not toward the things pertain to the kingdom of light. But it's moving toward darkness. And this type of person, their life is filled with a million little compromises. And the question of your life is, did God really, he really say that? 
Maybe he meant that in the first century, but surely in 2023, he surely didn't define marriage in that way. Still. Look, everybody's around me. I, I got a cousin who believes this way, and I can't imagine that God would be upset with her. She's such a nice person. Like, you're, you're, you're just cooperating. You're, you're, you're just on the belt. Well, this is really a dark thing, but the kids really love it. It's really fun. And grandma and grandpa, they wouldn't understand if we, if we kept the kids out of that. And so let's just let them do it this time. Well, we're eventually going to get married, and so maybe, maybe we can just sample each other. It's 2023. Just, this is the way things are going. This is how, we, this is how it's going. And what you would discover is that if you are not actively resisting darkness, you are cooperating with it. Because the third option is active resistance. Like the belt is moving this way, but my life is actually moving this way. And if you can guess, if you're in a sustained, you know, period of resistance, like, it's, it's tiring, right? Like, you've got to exert some energy. There is a press involved when the, when, the, when the pedway is moving in a certain direction and you're trying to move in a different direction, right? You talk to somebody who is doing this right, I talk to our single sisters and brothers who are trying to date God's way. It's, it's hard. When you decide that you're not going to entertain a knuckleheaded guy or gal, and even if they're a wonderful person but they don't love Jesus, your options immediately shrink. When you decide that no sex means no sex and we, we're not doing anything unless we cross the threshold of marriage, your options like shrink. When do you decide in your personal life that you will not compromise, you won't fudge the numbers, you won't cook the books, you won't tell little lies for the boss, your options shrink. It's tiresome. It's rigorous. It's hard. Scriptures tell us that narrow is the way to eternal life, and few there be that find it. This is what he's talking about. Because if you've been a Christian for more than a week, you know that your options are limited. And somebody's going to ask you why those things that you feel convicted about, like they're some, some people are bothered by your conviction. Resist or cooperate. And sometimes, and maybe you don't want to hear this from your preacher, I find myself cooperating with evil. You said, Gino, you saintly man, not you. 
<laughs> it's true. Because you wouldn't believe the sort of things that come at you the second you step on a stage and strap on a microphone. Even in a church our size. Paul says he's got to fight it. Jesus has to press back against it. Who, who am I? Who are you? You've got two options. You cooperate or you resist. And Jesus is the shining example of the two options we have because he resists. Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. What does Jesus say? No, the scriptures say people don't live on just bread. If you are the son of God, flex on them. The scriptures say you must not test the Lord your God. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Get out of here, Satan, for the scriptures say, it's like cut and paste almost. Jesus resisted. And he resisted that which opposes God with the very words of Scripture themselves. Worship team, you can come up as I lay in the plane. I'm already over my time. Scriptures tell us that the enemy is in the destruction business. Everything he does and says and moves toward you with is to tear you down, is to disqualify you, to fill you with doubt, temptation, deception, condemnation. That's his thing. And he's gotten really good at it. But our position is that we have passed, the scripture says, from darkness into light through the cross and through God's love. And the wonderful thing is, we don't have to partner with darkness anymore. The wonderful thing is that we've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light. Now the downside is, all of God's enemies now become our enemies. All of the forces of darkness that you used to cooperate with, that you used to be in company with, that you used to be cool with, now have become your enemies because you are now in the kingdom of light. But don't fear. The greater is he that is in you than he that is all the world. But we still have a job. Our task is this. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the enemy. That belt of truth. Keep our eyes on God. Stay rooted in the scripture, the source of truth. God's righteousness. Keep your relationships right with God and with other people. Do life in community to stay righteous. To stay moving against the grain of this world. Put on the gospel of peace. Lean into those things that pertain to life and godliness. Hold up the shield of faith. Press into God. When the storms of life press in and the helmet of salvation to win the battle of the mind before those mind things convert into action and the sword of the spirit.
know your Bible. Everything that the Lord pushed back against the enemy with was rooted in Scripture. Fight the good fight. Put on the whole arm. Resist. Would you stand with me if you can as we pray? Lord, we confess that we have cooperated with darkness. We confess that as we survey our lives that we have actively spent time, energy, resource. We've been entertained by things that break your heart. And some of us have been actively cooperating with darkness and others of us have just been passively just not resisting. Lord, you don't highlight these things to condemn us, but so that we could be transformed and so that we can be changed. And so, Lord, as we sing these few verses that remind us of who you are and who we are, give us strength for the fight. Give us strength to resist. Give us strength to center you in all the meaningful ways that you deserve to be at the center. Come Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. In Jesus' name. Amen.